This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Good morning. Our current box set of talks is called My Favourite Jesus Story because we want to continue to remind ourselves what Jesus is like. Now today I want to draw on the excellent book by Philip Yancey called The Jesus I Never Knew and I want to use it to piece together what we can learn from the accounts of Jesus that we know of as Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Now a bit like a jigsaw puzzle we can piece together uh, from these accounts of Jesus' life and some of the letters that Paul wrote as well what he was really like and it's amazing when you put it all together you know and put all the pieces together you get a really incredible a sense of what Jesus was like. Now, what I want you to do, just for a moment, consider what Jesus is like when you pray to him. What does Jesus look like? What does he sound like? What, what sort of things does he say to you? Um, what do you expect him to say to you? What do you rely on him for? What are your feelings like towards this person called Jesus? So what we're going to do is we're going to just, uh, we're just going to, we're just going to look through the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and we're just going to ask ourselves, does the person who we encounter in our prayers, in our meditations, bear much relation to what we see in the accounts of Jesus' life? Is it the same person? So, uh, first of all, what did Jesus look like? Now we'll talk about this one briefly because the honest answer is we don't know exactly. The familiar image of Jesus as this blue-eyed man with long hair and a beard that people have claimed to have seen in the shape of a cloud in the sky or imprinted like on a piece of cloth like the Turin Shroud or, or just a shape that kind of mysteriously appears on a piece of bread when you toast it and, and people say it looks like the face of Jesus and you know I, there's nothing insincere in that I'm sure but the reality is is that that actual familiar image is actually more from the fourth century uh, the Byzantine period and uh, these images would have been painted uh, by people who were symbolizing um, different aspects of who Jesus was his divinity and his humanity um, and they would have been um, based on images of um, gods and goddesses and, and things like that so um, he, he would have been sat like an enthroned emperor uh, like Zeus or like Roman the Roman Emperor Augustus um, and what the artists of these paintings were trying to do was was trying to show Jesus as this kind of cosmic universal ruler and now in the Middle Ages um, uh, Christians actually believed that Jesus suffered from leprosy so they would have painted him differently um, in 2001, a forensic anthropologist, Richard Neve, uh, created a model of what, not Jesus looked like, but what a typical Galilean man, which was the area where Jesus was from, Galilee, what a typical Galilean man would have looked like in the BBC documentary, Son of God. What he actually did was he, he, he got a skull uh, from that period in that region. And um, although he didn't claim that it was Jesus's face, it did prompt people to consider Jesus as being a man of his time and a man of his place. And this is what he would have looked like. Unfortunately, there are no descriptions of what Jesus looks like in the Bible. Um, but one that was written hundreds of years before it uh, in a prophecy by Isaiah is recorded in Isaiah 52 verses 14 and then 53 to 2 to 3. So let's just listen to this. Just as there were many, Isaiah says prophetically, speaking of the Messiah, just as there are many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. He had no beauty 
or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Now, of course, that's prophetic and prophets used a lot of figurative language um, and it's not a particularly attractive description, is it? As it, Isaiah says, there's nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him. There was nothing about Jesus' appearance that made him remarkable. Uh, there was no supernatural glow around him. He wasn't dazzlingly good looking. John the Baptist admitted that he would never have recognised Jesus apart from special revelation in that he, he sensed the Holy Spirit say, that's Jesus, the Messiah, or rather, that's the Messiah. And then he found out it was Jesus of Nazareth. You know, unlike our cultural tendency to be drawn towards uh, naturally attractive people, it seems that Isaiah was saying there was nothing in Jesus's physical appearance that would draw us to him. So when you pray, do you see an, a particularly attractive person, you know, a really good looking person? Do you kind of imagine Jesus has just, you know, got uh, nicely toned muscles, beautiful face, lovely hair, twinkling eyes, a lovely smile? How do you, how do you view Jesus? Because according to Isaiah, he was not particularly attractive. Um, but what about just a, a man of, of, of Jesus' time, like the Galilean man? Do you, do you imagine someone that looks like Richard Neves' Galilean man? Is that what you imagine when you pray? Let's look at Jesus' personality. What was he like? Was he solemn and calm and measured like he's often portrayed in TV or movies about Jesus? You know, the reality is that in contrast, uh, the accounts of Jesus' life uh, present a man who had so much charisma that people would literally sit for hours and days um, without food just to hear him speak. The accounts of Jesus' life, he seems excitable, impulsive even, moved with compassion or filled with pity. Um, we can read about a range of emotional responses, sudden sympathy for a person with leprosy, exuberance at his disciples' successes, um, a blast of anger at the cold-hearted Pharisees, grief over the, uh, the lack of the faithfulness of the Jews in general to Yahweh. And of course, those awful cries of anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane and whilst he hung on the cross. Jesus had Im deep emotional reserves. He had inexhaustible patience for ordinary people. And yet he had no patience at all uh, with injustice and those who perpetuated injustice. Jesus constantly praised other people. When he worked a miracle, he would deflect the credit back to them saying, um, oh, your faith has healed you. Um, you know, t not taking credit for it himself. He called Nathaniel um, a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. What a, what, for a Jew, that would have been an incredible statement. Of John the Baptist, he said there was none greater born of women. The volatile and unreliable Peter, one of his disciples, he renamed the rock. Sorry about that, Dwayne. Um, when a sobbing woman poured expensive perfume over his feet, inviting the criticism of the disciples for wasting such incredible amount of money, he defended her, saying that her generosity, the story of her generosity, would be told forever. And it still is, as I tell you this now. The accounts of Jesus' life show 
that he quickly established intimacy with people with whom he met, whether talking with a woman at the well, um, a religious leader in a garden, a fisherman by a lake. He instantly got to the heart of the matter and after a few moments of conversation, these people revealed their inmost secrets to him. This was really unusual for a rabbi because often people would keep their distance from uh, rabbis and religious teachers in, in Jewish culture because they respected them too much to get close to them or talk to them. But Jesus drew out something else from people, a hunger so deep uh, that people would crowd around him just to be close to him, just to hear his voice, just to touch his clothes. Jesus was also unusually sensitive towards women in a culture where men were dominant and disregarded women. Um, for example, he was kind and compassionate to a woman who was accused of adultery and condemned to stoning by the Pharisees. Jesus showed immense wisdom and compassion and she walked away from that threatening mob. Uh, Jesus treated women simply as equal to men, worthy of honour, respect and freedom. I suspect that Jesus would have not appreciated our respect for punctuality. Um, he attended wedding feasts that lasted for days. He let himself get distracted uh, by anyone who needed his help. He had always had time for people. Um, whether it was a hemorrhaging woman who shyly touched his robe in the hope that she might be healed, or uh, a blind beggar um, called Bartimaeus who made a nuisance of himself until Jesus turned and gave him his attention. Uh, two of his most impressive miracles, that is the raising of Lazarus, his friend, and Jairus' daughter, took place simply because Jesus arrived too late uh, to heal them before they died. Jesus made himself available to other people. He would accept almost any invitation to dinner, and as a result, no public figure of his time had a more diverse list of acquaintances and friends, ranging from wealthy people um, and leading Roman and Jewish leaders right through society to tax collectors who were considered to be uh, the lowest of the low, um, uh, fishermen, prostitutes, and leprosy victims. People liked being with Jesus and people, Jesus liked being with people. Um, he was great company and he clearly enjoyed a really good party with plenty of good food and wine. Jesus was a great leveller. He challenged the unequal structure of Jewish and Roman society. He prioritised women and children and treated them as equals. Um, he spent so much time healing the sick that he was left exhausted. So he authorised in the end his disciples and trained them and then sent them out to do exactly the same stuff he'd been doing, healing as many people as they could do. Um, as a result, um, many of these previously sick people um, uh, would have gained the opportunity and the ability to be able to work for a living. See, the thing is there was no social system. There was no, um, there was no social services. There was no healthcare system. Uh, so if you were sick, you were ill, you were, you were doomed to a, a, you know, an early death. Um, you couldn't, you could, certainly didn't have any quality of life because you couldn't look after yourself. So all these people, not just did Jesus heal them, but he gave them, he put them back on their feet and gave them the ability to work uh, and to enjoy life. Um, to the full. Um, in a highly segregated society, Jesus challenged the status of the rich and the powerful, and he empowered and gave voice to the marginalized and the weak and the vulnerable. Um, he warned the rich and the powerful that many who are now first will be last, and many who are now last will be first. 
And yet for all these qualities, uh, Jesus was also very different. As C.S. Lewis put it, he was not at all like the psychologist's picture of an integrated, balanced, adjusted, happily married, employed and popular citizen. You can't, this is C.S. Lewis speaking, you can't really be very well adjusted to your world if your world says that you've got a devil or ends up nailing you naked to a Roman cross. Like most of Jesus' peers, I think I would have found some of his claims about himself quite incredible. Um, Jesus claimed to be the son of God. Just think about that for a minute. Say, say one of your friends claims to be the son of God. What are you going to say to them? You know, he claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. And that's hardest for us to understand because many of us aren't Jews listening to this. But he claimed to be the saviour long promised throughout Jewish history. And, and yet Jesus ate and drank um, he was a carpenter, he got tired and lonely, he behaved just like any other ordinary human being. And you know there are many uh, stories um, in the accounts of Jesus' life that demonstrate the bizarre contradiction between his divinity and his humanity. But one of them stands out to me and that's the image and the story of Jesus in a boat in the middle of a storm. So Jesus is exhausted, he's been overwhelmed healing hundreds of people. They're on one side of Lake Galilee which is a lake that is around 20 kilometers across, it would take around about uh, six hours to cross by boat. And uh, on this occasion Jesus is tired and he's ready to go to the other side of the lake so he tells his disciples let's get in the boat and go across the lake. So they get in the boat and Jesus is exhausted and he falls asleep and uh, despite a storm blowing up he doesn't wake but uh, wake up but the storm grows in intensity and threatens to sink the boat and the disciples are terrified but also they're amazed that Jesus manages to keep asleep during this storm. So they wake him eventually in a panic screaming that they're all going to drown. Jesus gets up and almost with an air of irritation that he has been disturbed from his sleep he stands up yells at the storm to, telling it to stop which it does to the utter astonishment of the occupants of the boat and although it doesn't say it it's not hard to imagine that Jesus would have laid down and went back to sleep again. Um, the display of this power over the weather convinces the disciples of Jesus' divinity yet the story also speaks of Jesus' humanity. After all Jesus was fast asleep because he was exhausted moreover the Son of God but for his miracle, was subject to the chaotic forces of his own creation. What a contradiction. You know, the people who um, watched Jesus grow up were also freaked out by the sight of this local peasant boy that they knew really well and they'd watched grow up performing divine miracles and claiming to be the Son of God. Perplexed and amazed, they asked each other, isn't he Mary's boy? Isn't he the son of Joseph the carpenter? Um, you know, even his family, early on in the story of Jesus' ministry, even his own family thought that he was out of his mind for claiming to be the Son of God. So much so that they came to him to take charge of him. Uh, like someone, you know, perhaps a member of your family has a mental breakdown and they're behaving really bizarrely, out of character. So what do you do? You go and, you go and, you go and try and get them and bring them home and look after them and care for them until they become well again, right? Well, that's what his family came to do because they thought he was out of his mind as well. But the reality is, is that 
for the first year of Jesus' ministry at least, Jesus was wildly popular and people flocked to him in the hopes that they might see a miracle or they might hear him speak. Uh, and whilst Jesus uh, performed so many miracles um, that the disciples found it impossible to keep count, Jesus himself appeared to be curiously ambivalent about the miracles. You see, whilst Jesus was too compassionate to refuse to help someone who needed healing, he also didn't advertise his power to heal. In fact, he often told recipients of healing just to be quiet about it, keep it to themselves, because I think he had little patience for anyone who just wanted to see him perform a miracle as if he was some kind of circus act. For a man with such a public mission, Jesus surprisingly preferred to keep out the spotlight. Uh, some of his brothers suggested that um, he would be better off um, doing his ministry in Jerusalem because there were more people there and uh, people were traveling from all over the world by Jerusalem, uh, you know, that his message would have spread much more quickly and had more impact. But distrusting crowds and public opinion, Jesus spent most of his time in the small towns and villages away from the big city. Many people referred to Jesus as a rabbi, but strictly speaking, he wasn't a rabbi because rabbis were people that were enrolled in a rabbinical school from a very young age uh, where they studied under a respected rabbi. So, for example, the Apostle Paul was a Jew, a Pharisee himself, and he studied, and he said it of himself, he studied under the rabbi Gamaliel. Um, but Jesus never did that. He never, he never said that he studied under any other rabbi. He never claimed the authority or cited any other rabbi's teaching. Jesus simply didn't go to rabbi school. Um, instead, he claimed to be authorized by his Father in heaven. John seven sixteen. Jesus answered me, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. No wonder people thought he was mad. Jesus was clearly, though, a brilliant teacher, a brilliant religious teacher. He communicated such profound thoughts and ideas in everyday stories. So, for instance, a shepherd searching for a lost sheep, uh, a man who is mugged and left for dead by robbers, um, a single woman who loses a penny, who acts as though she's lost everything. Jesus' teaching wasn't complicated because he simply described life as he saw it happening around him and used it to speak about the nature of God and who God was and how God viewed relationship with people. For an illiterate society of farmers and fishermen, his stories perfectly enabled him to describe God in vivid detail. You know, it's one thing to describe in abstract terms the limitless, unconditional love of God. Um, it is quite another to tell a story of a father who scans the horizon waiting for his wayward son to return after squandering the family inheritance. And you know that story if you know the stories of Jesus. You know it because it's easy to remember um, and it's deeply profound. While Jesus dismantled the religious piety of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in order to re reveal the beating heart of God. Fearless, Jesus never backed away from conflict with the religious authorities who would seek to misrepresent Yahweh or oppress the marginalized and the vulnerable. He always spoke truth to power and didn't fear for his own safety.
Jesus knew that his purpose set him on a collision course with the Jewish leaders and ultimately the Roman authorities. Jesus knew that his statements about himself like I am the father or one or I have the power to forgive sins or I will rebuild the temple in three days. He knew that they would end in his death. He saw it coming and he didn't swerve to avoid it. During those three years of public ministry, there were many different groups of people around Jesus. There were those who were keen to see the spectacular miracles, the 5,000 who were miraculously fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. You know, anyone in those days, probably right the same now, right? But anyone who provided free food would always draw a crowd. There were those who were ill or disabled who, uh, who would have dared to hope that Jesus could heal them so that they could get on with their lives free from disease and disability. There were those who were really eager for Jesus to use his power and his popularity with the ordinary people to lead a revolt against the Roman occupation of Palestine. Um, there were many um, thousands of these people and Jesus's popularity with them would have deeply troubled the civic and religious leaders who worried that Jesus would destabilize their society, would undermine their leadership and put them in danger with the Roman authorities. But there were maybe a group of around a hundred sincere people who had been disciples mainly of John the Baptist who transferred their their followership, if you like, from John the Baptist to Jesus. And of those, that, and, and that would have been because John the Baptist effectively anointed Jesus as the Messiah. Of those, there were around about 12 that Jesus handpicked, which was an unusual thing in Jewish cult culture because rabbis didn't handpick their disciples. Disciples tended to choose their own rabbi, but in this case, Jesus handpicked his own disciples. And um, repeatedly, Jesus invited those around him, the 12 and the wider group, uh, to commit themselves wholeheartedly to God, which was not unusual for a Jew. Like, that would have been completely natural. Uh, for a rabbi to do that with his followers. You see, uh, Jesus uh, picked up the mosaic idea that you could not serve two masters. You could not serve both God and say yourself or both God and say money or, you know, ultimately in his worldview, uh, God needed to take priority, preeminence in your life. And so he would repeatedly invite people to deny themselves, serve other people, and take up their cross, which was a phrase Jesus used a number of times. And, and that was no idle metaphor because along the roads of Palestine, like across the whole of the Roman Empire, the Roman army would regularly nail up the worst criminals as a stark message to quell rebellion amongst the natives of that area. It was a way the, the Romans um, really controlled the areas that they'd conquered. They would make examples of criminals by nailing them to crosses and, what, and people would see their bodies dead on the cross or watching them die on the cross. And so Jesus' death on the cross was not an unusual thing, it was what the Romans did. Um, so the question is, was Jesus, by saying, take up your cross and follow me, was he inviting his disciples to martyrdom? Well, apparently so, because Jesus says this statement repeatedly, more than any other. You see, there's only one bit of Jesus' teaching that is found in all four accounts of his life. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus is recorded as saying this, this one bit of teaching six times in every book, which is really unusual. And um, uh, there was no other teaching that was repeated in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this is it. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. And you'll see that in Matthew 10, Matthew 16, Mark 8, Luke 9, Luke 17, and John 12. 
Now, I don't know if you ever knew that. Maybe, maybe you know your Bible well and you knew that that was the only teaching of Jesus that appears in all four Gospels. You know, I am comforted by the possibility that the 12 disciples probably didn't grasp fully what Jesus meant. You know, I think if you look at Matthew 20, you can see how um, James, the mother of James and John goes to Jesus and, and says to him, you know, when you are sitting, you know, in your kingdom, may, may my two sons sit, one at your left, one at your right. And, and Jesus says to them, you know, you don't know what you're asking for. Uh, you really want to follow me into death? Um, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Um, and the two boys, well, they say, yeah, we can. And Jesus said, well, yes, indeed, you will drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not for me to grant these places belong to those to whom they've been prepared by my father. But this is what gets me. The other 10 disciples, when the other 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know uh, that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great amongst you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To me, that seems like the disciples really didn't know what they were asking for. They were like, yeah, they, just, they were just interested in being powerful. They, were just wanted, they saw Jesus was going to be all-powerful. Jesus was telling them this, and they're like, yay, great, we're on Team Jesus. We're going to be powerful as well. I don't think they really understood what, what it meant uh, to follow Jesus and deny themselves and pick up the cross. I, I, I still don't think they were getting that. And I think that I'm comforted by that because I don't know about you, but I'm not quite sure what it means as well. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for you to be committed to Jesus? Um, what does it mean for you to pick up your cross and follow him? Um, what does it mean uh, to lose your life? What does it mean to deny yourself? I have another question for you. Which group of people would you have found yourself in if you had been alive at the time of Jesus? Say you've been living in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago or in Bethlehem or Nazareth. Where, what would your response to Jesus have been? Would you have been fascinated by the spectacle of him performing miracles? Would you have been dazzled by it like a circus act? You'd have been chasing him from village to village, watching what he did fascinated, inspired, awed? Would you have been wanting to ask Jesus to perform a miracle for you? Maybe you were sick, maybe you were ill, maybe you were in need. Would you have asked Jesus to heal you? Would you have asked him to provide for you? Would you have been drawn to Jesus because of the incredible wisdom that he spoke, the amazing stories that made you think clearly about life and gave you a sense of purpose, of um, meaning? Would you have been attracted to Jesus because of his charisma as a person? Would you have just wanted to be around him? Would you have almost fallen in love with him, idolized him? Would you have been attracted to Jesus because of his compassion and sense of justice? His great leveler um, approach to life, you know, bringing justice where there is injustice and challenging um, unjust leaders would you have been attracted to his compassion for those who were in need would you have been drawn to him if you had had the chance to speak to him heart to heart and if you had have had that chance what would you have spoken to him about why don't we just take a moment now just to ponder these questions